from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, April 12th. Today, fighting the measles outbreak. Why the military is weighing in on climate change and what it's like to die on Game of Thrones. We're here in Williamsburg today to deal with a very serious situation. This is the epicenter of a measles outbreak uh, that is very, very troubling and must be dealt with immediately. There are already quite a few cases, 285 cases since the outbreak began in October. Medical authorities believe there are actually quite a few more than that. This is happening in front of our eyes. Measles was eradicated in the year 2000, actually, uh, from the United States. And then it picked up again. And here we are again with so many cases. So people tend to forget that vaccines are effective because they don't see those diseases anymore. I'm Lenny Bernstein. I'm a health and medicine reporter for The Post. Lenny has spent the last few days in New York reporting on this outbreak and the people at the center of it, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in Brooklyn. They're the focus of a controversial public health campaign by the city. So on Tuesday, Mayor de Blasio declared a public health emergency around this measles outbreak. I want to emphasize our public health system stands ready to help any New Yorker who needs the vaccine for themselves or their child. If they have insurance, it will be covered. If they don't have insurance, they will only have to pay that which they can pay. If they can't afford anything, it will be given to them for free. On Wednesday, the city sent disease detectives into the community to physically knock on people's doors, talk to people who they suspect have been exposed or are not immunized or have not immunized their children, and tell them that they need to get vaccinated. However, the city is not going to involuntarily vaccinate anyone. That's that's not an option. So what are they doing to actually make sure that people do get vaccinated? Well, they're threatening them with $1,000 fines and misdemeanor criminal charges and encouraging them strongly to go ahead and do it and trying to persuade them to go ahead and do it. But they can't physically force you to be immunized. And I want to be clear, it is not our hope or our goal to issue a violation. We want to simply solve the problem. We have the ability to issue violations, but whenever people comply promptly, uh, we will not have to, or we will not have to levy fines. So you went to Williamsburg to see what was happening. What was that like? This is a community that has chosen to cut itself off from the world. They are ultra-Orthodox. All the men wear black coats and white shirts and the, the very large black felt hats. All the women wear skirts below the knee. Many of them have their heads shaved and they wear wigs. It is an ultra-religious portion of Brooklyn, and it is an extremely insular, self-contained place. When we went to talk about the measles— there were quite a number of people who were willing to voice their opinion. Also quite a number of people who were very suspicious and didn't want to talk at all. But among the people whom this is affecting, the director of a yeshiva named David Oberlander and the rabbis in the area and other school officials, this is a topic of conversation on the streets 
and very strong opinions. I wouldn't say that the media is doing a smear campaign against the ultra-Orthodox community, but a very, very, very inaccurate story is being labeled. We are a proud community. We are serious people. Yes, we have approximately 3% anti-vaxxer, which is all over the entire nation. It's not only, old, only in the ultra-Orthodox community. Only 3%. 97% of our students and families are vaccinated. Most people you walk up to on the street say, this is a tiny, tiny number. 1%, 2% of us are not vaccinating. I know one family, and they're good people, but they just choose not to vaccinate. And the media is blowing it out of proportion. The city is blowing it out of proportion. Then you go to the hospital, and you talk to the health authorities, and the health authorities say, that's not the case. We are seeing many, many cases of this, and we think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. More importantly, if 90% of these people were vaccinated, a phenomenon called herd immunity would be occurring. And that's the idea that so many people are vaccinated that everyone is essentially protected. If you get like a critical mass of people, then that protects all the other people who aren't vaccinated. But you just have to hit that critical mass, that Precisely. Kind of 90% threshold. Precisely. And so the hospital officials are saying, if 97 or 98% of these people were vaccinated, this outbreak wouldn't be spreading. And these people aren't vaccinating themselves and their children because it violates their religious beliefs, right? Not really. There is no religious prohibition on vaccination for Jews in the Bible. There are people who will tell you that there is, and certainly you can find things in the Bible, the Talmud, that justify the opinion you want to have. But no, that's largely a myth. And the rabbis who are out there telling people to vaccinate themselves are saying there is no religious prohibition on vaccination. Don't listen to that. So why are the people in these communities not vaccinating their kids? So number one, these are people just like everyone else who are trying to do the right thing for their children. If you think about an individual person, chances are not vaccinating, if you have some kind of a fear of it, is probably not going to affect you yourself. Your kid may or may not get very sick. You know, your odds are pretty good. Vaccination is, is more for everybody, for the community as a whole. Number two, this is a community where women start having children very young. They may not have the right information. And most importantly, there are anti-vaccination groups out there that are exploiting this. And in this case, there's a 40-page document that has been distributed around the community that raises all kinds of misinformation about vaccines and the things they can do to you and the reasons why you shouldn't be using them on your children. And if you take a fearful, untrusting group that doesn't have a lot of information to begin with and you give them this information, you probably are going to win some converts. And so now the city and to a lesser extent uh, a group of of people who are pro-vaccination are finally starting to push back and they are putting out information and holding presentations about why you should be vaccinating. So you have this whole propaganda war going on now. The anti-vaxxers are pushing a lot of propaganda out into the community and the health authorities are taking the facts and finally starting to push them back at the same people. So for the public health officials who are going out into these communities, how are they navigating this? 
like, how do they, are they just going door to door and knocking on people's doors and saying, show me your health records? No. Now, to be completely clear, the city wouldn't let us go with these health department workers. So they told us about what they were doing. But for example, there's a community health clinic in the neighborhood and they have been going over records there. They get referrals and reports and records from the hospitals. So it's not like they just go door to door and say, we need to talk to you. They have leads. If baby X came in with the measles, it stands to reason that someone needs to go to baby X's house and say to her parents, are you vaccinated? Are the siblings vaccinated? Who have you been in contact with? Who have you seen during the period that baby X was contagious? And then they go from there and they do what's called contact tracing. They trace all the contacts of those people until they're sure that they've reached people who are immunized and the disease can't spread any further. They did that with Zika. They did that with Ebola. Now they're doing it with measles. So for these officials that you talk to, what do they have to say about how they navigate this situation? Like, are they worried that that they could alienate or offend or scare off some of the people that they're talking to? I think that that is a possibility, but I think that right now the top priority is stopping the outbreak. Yes, it's delicate. Yes, you are trying to persuade people in some cases to do things they really do not want to do. But it has to happen for the outbreak to be slowed down. We have places in 19 states across the United States where we have outbreaks because people fear the vaccine more than the disease. It's time to remind people what this disease can do. It can cause encephalitis, a brain inflammation. It can cause pneumonia. You know, in the 50s, in the late 50s, it infected millions every year and several hundred died. We had more than one doctor say to us, that vaccines are a victim of their own success. They are so effective in eliminating a disease that a whole generation has grown up having never seen what measles do. And therefore, they don't know what the danger is. They've never seen it. There are doctors out there, when somebody presents with measles, they miss it because they've never seen measles. So vaccines are an extremely effective public health tool and to be rejecting them because you fear somebody has raised the fear in you that they're that they're not safe for you is is really an ironic consequence of their success. Lenny Bernstein is a health and medicine reporter for the Post. I also want to ask another readiness issue facing the Air Force, climate change. So tell me about this Senate hearing that happened last week where military officials talked about climate change. 
Congressional Democrats are trying to get military officers to go on the record to talk about to what extent climate change poses a threat. It's been the long-standing position of the military that climate change is something that qualifies as a national security risk and it's something we need to be grappling with. My name is Juliette Eilprin. I'm the senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post, and so I cover primarily how the Trump administration is transforming the way the government oversees the environment. The Defense Department's most recent report on climate change discussed the impact of this human-caused problem on our military operations and bases. This report included a statement by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, who said, quote, when I look at climate change, it's in the category of sources of conflicts around the world and things we'd have to respond to. So you had Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, for example, raising concerns about this and and asking this question to a person. Every top-ranking military official confirmed that this is the way they see the world. And so what we've seen unfold over the last couple of weeks is that as, for example, lawmakers have been asking senior military officials about this, they have been explaining how they see climate change as posing a grave risk globally as well as specifically to the military. If you take a look at Syria as an example, Uh most don't remember what caused the Syria conflict to start. You had the chief of staff of the Air Force cite the example of Syria as showing how climate impacts are destabilizing the global scene. It started because of a 10-year drought. Yes, water. And and folks having to move from their family farms into cities where they then were not getting any support and therefore a civil war began. We have to respond militarily very often to the effects of globally of climate change. So that's one of the examples. And then Heather Wilson, who's the outgoing Air Force secretary, a Trump appointee, subsequently backed up her chief of staff and also identified climate change as a national security risk. Maybe the the Air Force looks at these things more because weather is such a big impact on us uh, for all of our flying operations uh, uh, every day, and we're the ones responsible for weather forecasting around the globe. The infrastructure strategy looks at resilience and how do we get more out of every dollar that we spend. So there's a number of pieces of that strategy, but, but the resilience of our bases is very important because we fight from our bases. We don't leave our bases to fight. We fight from our bases. And so their resilience is very important. For the military, what are they saying about what they need to be doing to be prepared for climate change? There are a range of things that the military has identified as necessary to prepare for the impact of climate change. Particularly, it is a threat to our global installations. And so you have a number of army bases that are affected by sea level rise, for example. This happens close to home here in Norfolk, Virginia, as well as overseas in low-lying atolls, the Marshall Islands, other places. And so one of the main ways that the military is trying to cope with climate change is to see what it needs to do to defend its own installations. In addition, the military is a huge energy consumer. And so, again, they moved 
in many ways earlier than some other parts of the government to look at their supplies, to what extent renewable energy is a legitimate alternative. Because for them, when they're supplying fuel to a number of their installations and and their deployments, there are real security risks involved in transporting fuel. And so they're trying to sort out how to do that. The fact that the military that leaders in the military are talking about this and talking openly about how they're preparing for climate change, it seems like in some ways that puts them in an awkward spot because President Trump, the commander-in-chief of the military, has often expressed skepticism about climate change and, and whether climate change is real. That's true. And it's interesting to note that the National Security Council is the part of the White House that has been championing the idea of launching an initiative to question all of these assumptions, whether climate change poses a security risk, to what extent humans are contributing to climate change. For right now, it seems like the military has been relatively insulated from any pushback from the White House. So we've seen that, for example, some branches of them have declined to cooperate in this assessment, or we haven't seen the president lash out and criticize any of these top-ranking military officials who said something on it. It is an interesting conundrum. But for right now, there does not appear to be a penalty for top military officials when it comes to speaking out on climate change. And why is that? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that clearly the military tends to be an institution that's broadly supported by the American public, that's supported by Republicans, including those in the Republican base who tend to be Trump supporters. So without question, there's more of a price that the president would pay for going after military officials as opposed to, say, criticizing a traditional environmental constituency or, you know, something that's seen as left-leaning. I think that's really one of the main reasons. And, of course, the military is taking a pretty pragmatic stand. They're, you know, they're they're framing things in extremely concrete terms where it's more difficult to challenge. But if there is this difference in opinion between the White House's approach to climate change and the military's approach to climate change, do you see that becoming more of an issue or a conflict in the future? It absolutely could be. And I certainly think that it's something that, for example, Democratic political and presidential candidates are picking up on. By the way, let's talk about what might be the great security issue of our time. Climate change. And I think one of the best examples of that is Pete Buttigieg, who served in the military in Iraq. I had to fire up the emergency operations center of our city twice in two years. And the first time was a thousand year flood and the second time was a 500 year flood. So either I got to go uh, start playing the odds because I got amazing luck or something is changing around us. So let's call climate what it is, climate security, a life and death issue for our generation. Buttigieg is someone who has made climate change a major part of his campaign and frames it as a national security issue. So he's clearly seeking to exploit and take advantage of this chasm between the military and the president. And I think that, you know, without question, 
whoever is going to be running both at the top of the ticket and then across the country will be talking about this, whether, for example, that might force the president's hand and he might have to engage more once it becomes more of a top tier issue. One of the things I think that we've been struck by when I've been doing this reporting with folks, including Missy Ryan, who covers the Pentagon, and my colleague Brady Dennis, who covers the environment, is that it's really something that is so woven into the fabric of the government that right now we really haven't seen a tremendous shift in policy there in the same way that we've seen in some of the more traditional agencies that address climate change, whether that's the Environmental Protection Agency or the Interior Department become more of a political issue. Juliet, thank you so much. Thank you. Juliet Eilprin is a senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. The death toll on Game of Thrones. Even if you don't watch the show, you probably know that Game of Thrones is super violent. The Post has actually compiled an official count, and there have been more than 2,300 deaths depicted on the show so far. But one writer wanted to know, what is it actually like to die on the show? And obviously, spoiler alert, so, so many spoilers. Okay, let me try this. Let's see. Hodor was ripped apart by White Walker. Ned Stark was decapitated. Stab. Hung. Everyone was basically killed by Ramsay Bolton. Ramsay Bolton was torn apart by his own dog. Jon Snow was stabbed by Stabbed. Smushed. Shot in the eye. Burns. Most. Ooh, someone was ripped in half by the giant. My name is Ryan Pfeffer. I am a big Game of Thrones fan. I haven't read the books, but I've been watching the show on HBO uh, since it debuted in 2011, I think. For this story, I'm speaking to actors who have uh, been killed on the show. Um, It's not exactly an exclusive club anymore, but you're certainly uh, a member of it, and you really died uh, quite the death on the show, so... I spoke to Sybil Kakeli, who played Shay. So I I didn't want to know it, actually. I talked to Kristen Narn, who played Hodor. Uh, what was your mom's reaction when she finally uh, brought herself to, to watch it? Oh, she was very upset. <laughs> I mean, it's not every day you get to see your son be eaten by zombies. I talked to Sean Bean. Bring me his head. Who played Ned Stark. Uh, yeah, it was okay, really. You know, but it was a quite funny day, all in all. I mean, I, was, I think at one point I was walking around with my head in my hand. You know, even if you have no relationship with these characters... Physically, it's just, I mean, it makes you want to curl up into a ball and kind of hide. A lot of them don't know their deaths were coming. They could kind of guess or read the scripts and maybe try and predict, but a lot of them don't really know when they're going to die. They're told by the the writers of the show, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Just before season five began filming, you get the phone call from David and Dan. They told me my number was up. So... When I started speaking to them, you know, I quickly found out that this was kind of a hard thing for them to undergo, having to die on the show and then leave this cast and crew that they've spent, you know, months or years really bonding with. I think Sybil Kakeli, who played Shay, um, really summed it up well. Yeah, I was sentimental and I felt actually really 
And this sentiment that she told me kind of, I think, expresses what a lot of them were feeling. Game of Thrones, if it's proven one thing, it's that your predictions are trash. Nobody cares about them. And the, the writers, they know what your predictions are. And they're using our expectations to completely crush our souls. Game of Thrones has never shied away from violence. But in a lot of ways, all of that violence has been working towards this last season. It's just going to be complete chaos. And I'm genuinely scared for some of my favorite characters. I mean, you know, I spent seven seasons getting emotionally attached to them, despite, you know, my better judgment as a viewer. Ryan Pfeffer is a writer based in Miami. The final season of Game of Thrones starts on Sunday. Fans of the show will also appreciate The Washington Post's illustrated guide to all 2,339 deaths in Game of Thrones, compiled by graphics reporter Shelley Tan. It is an insanely meticulous accounting of the death of every man, woman, child, and animal on the show. You can find a link to both The Guide and Ryan Pfeffer's story at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalie Gastica. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 